Hello and welcome to season two of our podcast series, Close to Home, The Killers Among Us. We are Brenton, Sarah, and I'm Avery. And this Studio 151 podcast series will involve the coverage and discussion of our case of cases from our host hometown states, including Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Texas. This project is episodic style as we cover different true crime events or bizarre circumstances that have quite literally occurred close to our home. So for today's episode, we will be discussing one of the biggest acts of domestic terrorism in the history of the United States, the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. So some disclaimers before we get into the case, we might reference themes of white nationalism and racism, large-scale domestic terrorism, and gun violence. So if none of these, uh, if you get uncomfortable listening to these topics, we urge you not to listen to these uh, to this episode and take care of yourself. So we hope to have you listen to a different episode of ours, uh, even our past episodes that we've covered in like our season one, uh, that is more appropriate for you. So that being said, we'll start with a general overview of the case. Okay, yeah. So there is a lot um, about this case. So we're planning on doing it in two different parts. So the first part, we're kind of just going to get an overview and um, sort of some context into why this happened or some reasonings behind it. Okay, but to start with an overview, on the morning of April 19, 1995, one of the worst acts of homegrown terrorism in the nation's history was committed. At exactly 9.02 a.m. in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City, a deadly car bomb went off, injuring 500, killing 168, including 19 children, and damaging more than 300 nearby buildings. Beneath the rubble, clues to the origin of this horrific act were hidden. Just one day after the incident, a rear axle of a rider truck was located and traced to a body shop in Junction City, Kansas. Soon after discovery, the employees at the shop aided the FBI in putting together a composite drawing of the man who rented the van. After showing the drawing around town, local hotel employees identified the man, Tim McVeigh. The discoveries that would follow this identification revealed a web of twisted ideologies and ultimately lead to the swift capture and conviction of the men responsible. Yeah, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the background of the primary perpetrators uh, that were convicted of this crime. So we have Timothy McVeigh, which is the more infamous one, but we also have Terry Nichols, so I'm going to talk a bit about both. So Timothy McVeigh was born on April 23rd, in 1968, in Lockport, New York. His parents were Irish-American Noreen Mildred Hill and William McVeigh. He was the second-born child in his family with one older sister and one younger sister. When he was about 10 years old, his parents divorced, and following this, he was raised by his father in Pendleton, New York. Uh, McVeigh reported that he had been a target of bullying at school during his adolescence and teenage years. Uh, he often coped with this by imagining this sort of fantasy world in which he could retaliate against these bullies. Um, and actually, before his arrest and execution later, uh, he would state that the United States government was his ultimate bully. Uh, those who knew McVeigh described him as very shy and withdrawn. Uh, a few individuals said that during his childhood he was more outgoing and playful, but upon entering, entering his adolescent teenage years, he became a lot more introverted and self-isolated. Uh, despite this, uh, he is said to have one romantic relationship during his teenage years, but other than that, he seemed either uninterested in socialization or more maybe he was just more awkward or uncertain about how to build relationships with others. Um, in high school, he took up an interest in computers and tech, 
he once even hacked into government computer systems. Uh, and I, I thought this was pretty notable because this is in the 1980s and uh, he was just using a home computer, a Commodore 64 or C4, C64. And I'm not a huge technology person, but from the research I did, like this was just a general home computer. Um, it could be used for video gaming, some programming, some programming, but uh, was not really used to access secure government systems. So um, this was a pretty big deal. Um, his senior year of high school, he was named the most promising computer programmer. He was also named most talkative, but this seems to be more of like a joke um, by his classmates since he actually did not speak much at all. Uh, regardless of his talent in the computer and tech realm, his grades were relatively poor. Um, nonetheless, he graduated in 1986. McVeigh was introduced to firearms by his grandfather. He took an acute interest in them, and he even brought firearms to school to impress his classmates. He also told people that he wished to one day be a gun shop owner. Uh, kind of following this similar pattern of behavior, he was a huge gun rights, Second Amendment advocate, especially after he graduated high school. He read a web magazine called Soldier of Fortune, which reported on wars, conventional warfare, low-intensity warfare, and counterterrorism. Uh, I thought this was particularly interesting. Uh, kind of wanted to know, like, just y'all's reaction to this, because uh, I looked a little more into the history of this magazine series, and not only was it highly controversial and involved in several lawsuits, um, but these lawsuits had to do with uh, what's called like gun for hire lawsuits. Uh, essentially, they were publishing advertisements um, to like private mercenaries to like take on these advertisements and it involved either like trying to murder people. Uh, there was a lot of wrongful death lawsuits that came out about this, even contracted killings. Uh, I don't know, just like, <laughs> do y'all have any thoughts about that? Yeah, that's like been a lot of um, like notable cases have gun for hire, like where they hire somebody like to kill their husband, you know, for obviously multiple different reasons. Uh, so this is interesting that it's brought to a lawsuit because um, contracted killings obviously is not something you uh, want to be hearing about. But And he was, was he a young boy when he was writing this? Was he in school? My understanding, this would have either been in his late high school years or kind of like fresh out of high school. Okay. Like this was just something he did in his free time was read this magazine online. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I just, I feel like that's just probably put, it was kind of what put some of like the bad thoughts he had in his head kind of you know just from being exposed to that and reading about it um yeah that's absolutely and in psychology we talk a lot about confirmation bias uh so we can see that mcveigh just from his early life in general he had very misconstrued opinions on government and uh guns and gun rights and it just seems that as we continue to talk about his kind of life story I guess you just see so many instances where it's like yeah that we can see the path that he's kind of going towards um and it's just I guess it's just scary um because this could be anyone you know uh he went to high school with these kids and he apparently brought his firearms to school I think that was the most shocking for me to hear were they, were they loaded like what did I can't believe that happened in nobody like stopped him or found out yeah i didn't look up that detail but this was in the 1980s so this is kind of before we were having all these uh 
nationwide school shootings. So I'm just assuming the rules were more relaxed. Um, he was living in, I think where he was living in New York wasn't like the most populated city mm -hmm. either. I don't want to say it's rural. I'm kind of teetering towards it being a suburban rural. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, it's like absolutely astounding to hear about this, especially with our generation, uh, what we've grown up with dealing with school shootings and guns. This is just unfathomable almost. Yeah, definitely. Like even now in high school, you can't even like make like the motion of like that you have a gun or something like that. Because then you would you would get like immediately they like, take suspended. it very serious. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, we'll try to limit our commentary, but uh, I just think it goes to show why early intervention and like picking up on details like this as an educator, as a parent is so important because there mm -hmm. was so many signs yeah. uh, that there was just something wrong with the way he was viewing the world. But I'll go ahead and get back to the narrative. So um, following high school, he briefly attended college, but he would eventually drop out. Um, afterwards, he worked as an armored car guard um, armored car guard. I don't actually really know what that means. Do y'all know what that means? Yeah, like the cars that are like government are like, like in, a, in an instance is like a government vehicle that like has armored, like they're obviously transporting mm -hmm. and stuff. So he would be one that like would have a gun, would have a body armor and things like that. And he would be either driving or riding in a car that's armored. Gotcha. That makes sense. So uh, along with that line of work, his co-workers reported that he was obsessed with guns. So this was just kind of an ongoing trend for him. Uh, one co-worker even recalled that he came in one one day to work wearing a, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, a bandolier, which I had to look up what that was. Uh, but it's essentially when you have like those pocketed belts, it kind of looks like a sash like across your chest. I don't know if he had like both of the sashes or just one. But uh, it has individual cartridges or belts of ammunition in it. And so he's just kind of like pulling up with ammo strapped on his chest, uh, which was not normal for the line of work he was in. I mean, I don't think he got in trouble for it, but it just was kind of like very unnecessary uh, behavior. Uh, but so we're going to divert to Terry Nichols for a little bit. So I'll try to cover them at the same time. So uh, I have a little less for Terry Nichols. Terry Nichols was born in... Lake Pier, sorry, anyone from Lake Pier, I don't know if I said that right, uh, Michigan, to Joyce and Robert Nichols. He grew up on a farm with his three other siblings. Um, growing up, he learned to operate and maintain equipment while on the farm, and he also reportedly cared for injured birds and animals. Um, he attended Lake Pier High School, where he took elective classes in crafts and business law. Similar to McVeigh, he was also characterized as shy, although I don't think he was necessarily as rec reclusive as uh, McVeigh was. Because uh, he was a, he was very involved. He played uh, junior varsity football, wrestling, and he was a member of the ski club. In 1973, he graduated high school with a 3.6 GPA and ambitions of becoming a physician. So very different academic standings as well. So now we'll go back to Timothy McVeigh, and we're going to talk about his entrance into his military career. So in May 1988, McVeigh, 20 years old, enlisted in the United States Army. While in the military, he spent his spare time reading about firearms, sniper tactics, and explosives. He was reprimanded by the military for purchasing a white power t-shirt at a KKK rally where they were objecting to black military servicemen who uh, were wearing black power t-shirts around um, their military installment. He also met Terry Nichols, his future co-conspirator, as we've mentioned. He was his platoon guide while in the military. Uh, they got along well. Um, they 
came from similar backgrounds, and they shared views in gun collecting and survivalism, which, um, Brenton, you want to talk about what survivalism is? Yeah, um, so basically what I was telling her off camera is that um, survivalism is basically where the extremists, um, so maybe in the 1950s while the Cold War was going on, they would be the guys that would be building bunkers and getting a lot of guns and thinking the world was going to end. So I guess a modern term is that if the government is going to collapse, we're going to be the ones to take it back, you know, through firearms and, you know, using everyone coming together to be take it back, essentially, which is very, very extreme. Yeah, or if there was a civil war, it's, it's yeah, very extreme views, like Brenton said. Um, so they both had interest in that. And later, they were stationed together in Kansas at Fort Riley, and they met their future accomplice, Michael Fortier, which we will not be covering any background of Michael Fortier. He is involved in the case, so he will come up again, but we're just not going to go into his background. Um, but anyways, uh, McVeigh was a top-scoring gunner with the 25-millimeter cannon of the Bradley Fighting Vehicles and was promoted to sergeant. That was kind of a mouthful. I had to look up what that meant, the 25-millimeter cannon of Bradley fighting vehicles. To me, if I'm visually describing it, sorry to listeners who have, like, vast military, like, weapon knowledge. I sound like I know nothing, which I don't. Um, But it kind of looks like a tank, and I guess essentially he was just really good at shooting out of it for a simple explanation. Um, So he was promoted to sergeant, kind of related to him being so proficient in that area. Uh, But following his promotion, he earned like pretty bad reputation for assigning undesirable work to black servicemen and also using racial slurs when referring to them or speaking to them. Um, He later, he was deployed on Operation Desert Storm, which this is a part of the larger Gulf War, which is um, a part of the Cold War, uh, specifically uh, within Iraq. So uh, McVeigh later claimed in an interview before his execution that he hit an Iraqi tank on his first day and then they surrendered. Kind of just a weird thing to brag about. I'm going to leave my commentary there. After returning from the war, he attempted to join the U.S. Army Special Forces but withdrew because of an injury. Uh, He felt that he was not physically ready and so he was honorably discharged in 1991. And now we'll be going back to Terry Nichols. So before he joined the military, he had some adult life experiences. So he enrolled at Central Michigan University, where he had decent grades. Um, It kind of varied among subjects, though. In 1974, his brother Leslie was badly burned in a fuel tank explosion on their farm. Uh, He even offered uh, to give his brother skin for the graphs. Um, He also tried farming with his other brother, James, but they didn't really get along, so it didn't work out. Um, In 1976, he moved to Colorado and started doing real estate. He was starting to become fairly successful at it uh, when he had to return to Michigan once again to help his mother with the farm. Um, In 1980, Nichols married Lana Lana Walsh, and they had a son, Joshua, in 1982. During the marriage, he worked all sorts of jobs to support his family, carpentry, managing a grain elevator, and selling life insurance and real estate. Although his wife, Lana, ex-wife, would account that she was the primary financial provider while Nichols stayed home with the children and was kind of like a homemaker. And so, I mean, kind of what I got out of this is that he was working all sorts of jobs, all sorts of odd jobs, and he was moving around a lot. Um, So his military career started in 1988. Uh, For him, it was kind of a way to escape the farm life. He didn't really enjoy it. So he enlisted at the age of 33. 
uh, which 33 is, uh, I mean, it's never too old to enlist in the military, but uh, he was the oldest man in his platoon, and so he kind of struggled with some of the physical aspects of basic training, and some of the other men even called him Grandpa. Um, however, his age did lead him to becoming the platoon guy, just because I guess he was more mature. Um, so, as said, this is where he met Timothy McVeigh in his platoon, and the pair had become quick friends. Some of the things that they shared in common was growing up in majority white rural areas. Uh, they both had attempted college and had parents who were divorced, but most notably, they shared similar political views and interest in gun collecting and the survivalist movement, as mentioned. Uh, later, when stationed in Kansas together, they, as repeated, uh, met their future accomplice, Michael Fortier. Uh, Nichols' wife filed for divorce soon after he joined the army due to conflict over custody. He did end up requesting a discharge from the military, which they granted, but it wasn't super honorable. It was kind of disgraceful. Before departing in May of 1989, he told a fellow soldier that he would start his own military organization soon with an unlimited supply of weapons. So now we'll go into the post-military life for both men. For McVeigh, we have quite a lot of things going on. In 1982, he wrote letters to a local newspaper complaining about taxes, saying, quote, Taxes are a joke. Regardless of what a political candidate promises, they will increase. More taxes are always the answer to government mismanagement. They mess up. We suffer. Taxes are reaching cataclysmic levels with no slowdown in sight. It's a civil war imminent. Do we have to shed blood to reform the current system? I hope it doesn't come to that but it might. Later, McVeigh would move to Michigan uh, while visiting friends and family there. Uh, he reportedly continued to complain about uh, government-related issues, including this belief that the army had implanted a microchip in his butt. There's not really a more elegant way to say that. And he believed that the government was essentially stalking him and trying to keep track of him. Uh, during this period, he worked super long hours. Uh, he was still struggling to build social connections, especially romantic ones. He had quite a few, like, failed attempted romantic relationships and so he was pretty lonely and he grew very frustrated um this may have led him to taking up obsessive gambling uh this put him really deep into debt and so he began looking to move to a state with low taxes but he became enraged when he received a letter from the government saying that he had been overpaid for uh his work in the army and so they wanted him to pay back about a thousand dollars uh this is how he responded Go ahead, take everything I own, take my dignity. Feel good as you grow fat and rich at my expense, sucking my tax dollars in property. So you may notice a big theme here is uh, financial liberty, I think is one of his like major issues. Um, anyways, eventually he would quit the National Rifle Association that he had been a part of because he believed they were too weak on gun rights. Post-military life for our other guy terry nichols in 1990 he remarried at the age of 35 and uh, to a 17 year old girl um although they did later divorce in sarah's face it's a shock oh my gosh yeah really yes i, I was wow. pretty surprised and how old was he he was 35 oh no okay and, and it, it is kind of interesting because uh, from what I looked up, it wasn't, like, a pattern of him dating younger. The previous wife I mentioned, uh, Lana, she was actually older than him. And I, I think it was by quite a bit. I can't remember mm -hmm. how much. Or maybe it wasn't. Regardless, she was older than him. So, yeah, it was it was kind of like, wow. Okay, we're going to the 17-year-old after that because uh, your first marriage didn't work out, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, her name was uh, – I'm going to pronounce her name wrong. M Marif. Torres. I'm going to just call her Miss Torres. Uh, she was from the Philippines, and she was actually a from a mail order bride agency, which, um, to kind of explain what that was, uh, 
women could put their name and information onto these agencies like websites or uh, whatever and uh, it was a way for a lot of women in developing countries to get access to move to like a developed nation like the U.S. and so that is exactly what happened with the two of them Uh, but when she arrived months later to the U.S. she was actually pregnant with another man's child. Uh, This child died at the age of two from suffocation uh, allegedly or not allegedly actually the uh, plastic bag left in his bedroom. The alleged part is that Miss Torres suspected that it had been foul play from either Nichols or McVeigh. Uh, But the death was ruled accidental. There was no evidence that this had been foul play. And so it seems as though she just moved on uh, because after this, she went on to have two more children uh, with him this time. The pair also repeatedly traveled kind of to and from the United States and the Philippines. Uh, Nichols would even sometimes go by himself. One time, whenever he was leaving on one of these visits to the Philippines, he left a cryptic note and a package of documents uh, with his ex-wife, Lana, and the letter had instructed her what to do in the event of Nichols' death. So it was just weird, for lack of anything else to say. It was just weird. Um, So now we're going to go back to Timothy McVeigh. So uh, he would reunite with Michael Fortier, uh, which we mentioned uh, they all three of the men had met in the army. So um, McVeigh would meet up with him later after the army when he relocated to Kingman, Arizona. Uh, Before moving there, uh, which is this is kind of interesting, he considered uh, when he was considering where he was going to buy his property, he made a road atlas with hand-drawn markings of the places that were most likely going to be hit with nuclear attacks. So he used this to help gauge where he could safely relocate, like the nuclear-free zones. And to me, this is very reminiscent of what Brenton was saying about the survivalist movement origins, uh, which mostly had to do with this Cold War uh, looming fear of nuclear disaster. Um, Anyways, in Kingman, he lived with Michael Fortier, and they became very close. Uh, He even was his best man at his wedding to Lori. Lori is another future accomplice. Uh, During this time, McVeigh was also experimented lightly with cannabis and methamphetamine. McVeigh and Fortier, when they later uh, parted, it had to do with the fact that Michael Fortier was more interested in, uh, more intense with his drug habits. So uh, McVeigh wasn't as, like, into that, I suppose. Um, But then we have, going back to Terry Nichols, his kind of post-military life continuing with that. So, uh, in general, his anti-government views grew over the years. During his adult life, uh, the counties that he lived in in Michigan were known for their mistrust and resentment of the federal government. So, he's kind of like living in this community that's validating and revalidating his beliefs. Part of the reason uh, this area of Michigan was so distrustful distrustful of the federal government was because of a series of bank foreclosures on many of the farms uh, throughout the 1980s in this region. Uh, neighbors reported that uh, Nichols would attend meetings of, an- uh, of anti-government groups and he experimented with explosive. He seemed as time went on to become progressively more radicalized. He also adhered to the sovereign citizen ideology, which, yeah. I've I've seen, I've heard of that before. Is it like where, um, I don't know exactly the history behind it, but isn't it where it's like um, 
they don't need like a driver's license to drive and stuff like that like what what is the reasoning behind yeah, that i like i actually watch a lot of like uh law enforcement body cam videos yeah, that's where I've so seen i have it. seen some like sovereign citizens pop up on there and yeah you're exactly right they kind of believe in their own individual interpretation of the constitution in order to like validate and protect their rights uh but that's not how it works the law interprets the constitution um and so yeah they they believe that they do not need a driver's license if they are traveling as in not you know commuting for a work or business they see it as like free right to travel and that's why they don't need a driver's license so yeah that that's so this is a much that's one specific example of people that follow this sovereign citizen ideology um so he actually attempted to renounce his u.s citizen in 1992 he wrote to a local county clerk in Michigan stating that the system was corrupt and that he was going to declare himself a non-resident alien. Uh, months later, he appeared in court to defend himself over some unpaid credit card bills. He owed approximately $40,000 in unpaid credit card bills. In, in 1980s money? or This would be around like, this would be in the early 1990s. Oh my god. Which is still that's a that lot is, of money. That would be a lot of money too. That is a lot of money. Yeah, so I mean, we can kind of see the the similarities between McVeigh and Nichols. Uh, I feel McVeigh did some more outwardedly, outwardedly, I don't want to just say like awful because they're both awful things, but uh, you can definitely see that Nichols, even though he's not as infamous as McVeigh, he had these very like corrupt ideas as well. Um, and so, yeah, he didn't think he needed to pay his credit card bills. Uh, he actually shouted at the judge that the government had no jurisdiction over him. Similar patterns of behavior continued. I did not write down every example because Nichols is essentially repeating uh, what we've already discussed. He just keeps getting in trouble for not paying things or uh, other like legal obligations he has. Uh, and then he just ends up getting mad at the government and telling them, you have no control over me. And I mean, he did denounce himself as a U.S. citizen. So he thinks that he's exempt, I guess, from the law. Uh, so yeah, similar patterns of behavior continued, uh, and also he maintained his relationship with McVeigh post-discharge from the military. In the fall of 1993, uh, the two became business partners. They sold weapons and military surplus at gun shows. Uh, Nichols would later go on to do some other work, uh, but they either failed or just did not maintain his interest because he would, uh, go back to working, uh, with McVeigh again in the fall of 1994. And... As said, he continued to have resistance to local government authority, essentially no matter what state he lived. Both of them seemed to relocate a lot because it's almost as if they thought like, oh, I'm going to go to another state that has more relaxed laws, but then they would still find issues uh, with the governing of that state once they got there. So they did seem to move around a lot. Uh, I would dare say I think Nichols moved more frequently. Um, that's just my guess based on what I've read. But yeah, so I'm going to stop about there because now we're going to move into some more motives and precursor context to the bombing. And so Brenton is going to take over now. Right. So I say, and I kind of had like a little intro with this. So like throughout history, like especially in the 1990s, which a lot of the stuff, the motives and context that I'm going to be describing all happened in the 90s, right before the, the bombing occurred. Um, I'd say it started a new era of like resentment and pushback for the governmental powers and authoritative figures who made these brass decisions to carry out like, you know, stuff that just turned violent. Um, so many movements arose because of this, and many instances covered by the national media, media gave it reason to be, reason to be meaning like these things happen. So now people are gonna obviously like uh, push back and think like they're gonna 
do something else about it when the government is above them. So, like, the one person that uh, Avery and Seb already covered is Timothy McVeigh. Uh, so all these motives I'm going to be talking about are from McVeigh's perspective. So uh, as someone who had a military background and already had this, like, arc, we'll call it, of, like, resentment due to things he saw or heard, uh, I'll be covering three different movements and events that potentially or quite literally caused him to do the OKC bombing. So firstly, I want to talk about his involvement within the Patriot movement. So some brief background, it emerged in the ni- early 1990s. Uh, characterized by a loose coalition of individuals and groups who shared a deep distrust of the federal government. Um, So it was driven by factors such as economic instability and perceived government overreach. So some of these things that you were talking about for both of them, like obviously this was an issue for them and obviously they had pushback. So this movement emphasizes the need to protect individual rights and liberties, often through armed resistance if deemed necessary, which is obviously key because that kind of ties into his obsession with the guns for hire magazine and obviously into his military career and a quote that i saw online um obviously not mine but it said right-winged gun loving individuals who would rather take action in their own hands rather than be controlled by whomever so the whomever would be the government i guess in this instance so mcveigh's obsession with guns and his passion for firearms became a defining aspect of his identity He viewed firearms as a symbol of individual liberty and the means to protect oneself from perceived government tyranny, um, which you briefly mentioned that they attended a lot of gun rallies across the United States. So this was obviously a big thing. He was part of the NRA, which is still big today, uh, even though he did drop out of it, which I did not know that. But uh, finally, his experiences in the U.S. Army, where he uh, developed uh, considerable expertise with firearms, only deepened this obsession. So... This Patriot movement obviously was huge for him and obviously led these other events that changed his um, understanding and wanting to go through with this. So the second thing I want to talk about is Ruby Ridge, which happened in 1992, which was a pivotal event occurring in Ruby Ridge, Idaho, which uh, was basically about a guy named Randy Weaver, uh, who was a separatist, so someone that wanted to separate uh, himself and his family from everything. Uh, and his family were involved in an 11-day standoff with federal authorities. Uh, this standoff resulted from Weaver's refusal to appear in court on firearm charges. He had uh, firearms that obviously uh, were not meant for him. He just had them in his possession. So tragically, the standoff ended after 11 days uh, only because uh, the deaths of Weaver's wife and son, uh, along with a U.S. Marshal, um, happened. So Ruby Ridge became a rallying point for the Patriot movement, uh, intensifying their belief that the government was encroaching encroaching on their freedoms. So McVeigh was just outraged by what he perceived as the government's abuse of power and its willingness to use deadly force against American citizens at any cost because he probably thought that 11-day standoff, like this is too long, so we're we're just going to go in and kill them, which that was definitely not the case. So Finally, I want to talk about the Waco siege, which obviously was the huge thing that caused him to want to go through with this. So this standoff was a lot longer than 11 days. It occurred from February 28th to April 19th. That's a key date to remember, April 19th, 1993. The Waco siege unfolded in obviously Waco, Texas, involving a religious sect known as the Branch Davidens. I had to look that up, uh, led by David Koresh. Uh, he's a very interesting individual. I won't really get into him, but he... Uh, had a lot of kids, so if that says anything. Uh, the Branch Davidens were under investigation for alleged illegal weapons possession, like um, like the other one, Ruby Ridge, and child abuse. Um, so 
that was a st- uh, that was pretty much the reason they wanted to. But then they found out like he also had gun possession. Um, uh, so this one was a 51 day standoff between the groups and federal law enforcement, which we looked up. It was the ATF and and FBI. So obviously it was a huge issue, which ultimately resulted in a devastating fire that consumed the compound, claiming the lives of many, uh, including children. So a lot of people were lost on both sides, both FBI agents, U.S. Marshals, and um, the people within the compound. So the Waco siege deepened this divide between the government and those in the Patriot movement, uh, like Ruby Ridge was, and viewed it as a heinous display of government overreach. Second time I've had to say that. Uh, So Timothy McVeigh's journey from the Waco siege to becoming the OKC bomber reflected a disturbing sequence of events. So in 1993, while this was going on um, during the Waco siege, him and Nichols um, watched it live. And I think they even went to Waco for some of it. I don't know how, what the extent of it, if they were just like watching it from afar, but they both watched it live uh, with their own eyes. And this obviously irked them. And witnessing the uh, fiery end of this siege uh, fueled his growing hatred for the federal government and intensified his anti-government sentiment. So basically, in summary, as I want to kind of talk about the the Patriot Movement, Ruby Ridge, and Waco siege were pivotal moments in the 90s that just heightened his anti-government sentiments. And uh, these events for the stage uh, of domestic terrorism, um, he saw himself as a martyr, which we can kind of get into that. I think Tim McVeigh saw himself as a martyr uh, in a struggle against perceived government oppression making him a chilling example of the extreme consequences of radicalization within the Patriot movement. So the last thing I want to cover is um, a month before he was executed in 2001, so we'll fast forward a little bit, um, he wrote a three-page letter to one of his friends. His name is Bob Papovich, and I I think initially he told him, like, hey, don't share this with anybody. This is, like, art between us. But right before, a month before he was executed, he was like, hey, like, can you, like, share it, basically? So I just want to go over some quotes that he said within it and then I will conclude my part but the first one he said uh, I explain herein why I bombed the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City I explained this not for publicity nor seeking to win an argument of right or wrong I explained so that the record is clear as to my thinking and motivations and bombing a government installation I chose to bomb a federal building because such an action served more purposes than other options Foremost, the bombing was a retaliatory strike, a counterattack for the cumulative raids and subsequent violence and damage that the federal agents had participated in over the pre- uh, preceding years, including but not limited to Waco. Uh, for all intent purposes, federal agents had become soldiers, which I wanted to highlight this, using military training, tactics, techniques, and etc. as they were escalating their behavior. Uh, Additionally, barring a page from U.S. foreign policy, I decided to send a message to the government that was becoming increasingly hostile by bombing a government building and the government employees within that building who represent that government. Bombing the Murrah Federal Building was morally and strategically equivalent to the U.S. hitting a government building in Serbia, Iraq, or other nations. And finally, I wanted to highlight the bombing of the Murrah Building was not personal no more than when Air Force, Army, Navy, or Marine personnel bomb or cruise missiles against government installations and their personnel. So all that to say, he uh, obviously tried to justify why he thought like this and why he wanted to go with through with it. Obviously, it was three pages, and that was just six quotes that I wanted to highlight. Like I said, he just wanted to justify it and using terms that make 
make the government the the bad people the ones that they're you know they're federal agents become soldiers i was just sending a message like obviously this is bad but it's not as bad as them you know bombing a government building in serbia like these these terms are just huge and they're like it's kind of heinous honestly but yeah so that's kind of the overview that i had for why he might have decided to or actually quite literally maybe the waco siege was the final stop for him to continue through with this Along with those quotes, uh, before we started recording, there was another quote that I found uh, that I'm trying to verify if it was actually said. From what I've been looking up so far, I believe it was actually said. Uh, But he said to think about the people, people referring to the individuals that uh, died or were affected by the bombing. Um, He's specifically referring to government uh, workers. He says, think about the people as if they were stormtroopers in Star Wars. They may be individually innocent, but they are guilty because they work for the evil empire. Wow. That that was a lot to unpack. They, yeah. Um, Frankly, they just sound so crazy. Like, it's, I think part of the reason why um, their ideologies all kind of built was just like this echo chamber that they Absolutely. were in, that everybody was echoing the same just kind of crazy ideology um, and it kind of like a paranoia as well as, as you kind of talked about whenever you were talking about their backgrounds, like that they were, um, they kept moving and they like they were, they just thought the government was out to get them and stuff like that. It just, it just sounds so crazy. Like, yeah. Yeah, I feel like a lot of that paranoia is associated with the survivalist movement, which Mm -hmm. it talked about them both being interested in that. So you can kind of see where they're grasping from. And, you know, uh, the way we're covering this case, it's not even that we're trying to, like, uh, defend or justify. We're just providing this context on their lives. So you can kind of see how they even got to the point of being willing to do something so horrible. And also I think it's important to talk about cases like this uh in a detailed manner because evidently we don't want this stuff to be repeated again and I think there's a lot we can learn from these situations because something that I just was feeling as I continue to research this case is that there were so many signs that these men uh were not especially McVeigh were not mentally stable and that their beliefs were not only self-destructive for them but for others and yeah I, I think it also says a lot about Maybe some of our military culture, which, you know, it's, it's hard to talk about this without making very, like, controversial statements. But, uh, you know, just the, the fact that while he was in the military, his kind of behavior was, like, almost applauded um, mm-hmm. at times. And, you know, it just kind of all of this shows that these little moments can result in something big because they do add up. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, this is a depressing case. Um, so for this first part, we really just kind of wanted to set a, well, we did our general overview so that you know what the case even is. And then we kind of just wanted to talk about these contributing factors in this background and context. Because uh, I think a lot of the other cases we've covered doing this podcast so far are usually like, uh, they're individualistic as in they occur within the family. Or it's a very like specific motivation. This case really appeals to a larger societal issue that has been occurring in the United States, honestly, since the foundation of this nation. And I think it's very important to carry or to deal with cases like these carefully. But at the same time, we don't want to shy away from 
saying some of our opinions because it's just that this whole situation is just wrong in a lot of what they were thinking. It's just disappointing, I guess, and huma- the lack of humanity. Yeah, just the ramblings of just crazy people, essentially. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, and they just just bounced, I guess, these ideas off of each other. And just it's just so crazy how they ever found it to be like a logical reasoning. But yeah, it's definitely yeah. it's definitely um, important to like note the context behind it because you kind of could kind of un- like to just kind of get an idea of like where in the yeah. world they even get these ideas in the first place. So and the fact that it's not an isolated incident, the mm-hmm. fact that there was this larger social context, which shows that it wasn't just people like McVeigh and Terry Nichols that thought this way. There was people behind them, people backing up and validating their ideas. Maybe not everyone within the Patriot movement, maybe not everyone um, that has these extreme anti-government views is going to be willing to commit the carnage and disaster that they committed and caused. But um, it's still it's still a threat to our society because it encourages people that are willing to make those like horrible or they see it as sacrificial decisions mm-hmm. like Timothy McVeigh. Uh, something we were also talking about before we started recorded was, you know, if he didn't have like this support in this community that he found later in life to validate his kind of outrageous beliefs, would he would he have been so motivated to commit something like this? And honestly, I don't know. Um, it's kind of like what Sarah said about the echo chamber. Um, yeah, I think he found confidence through like other people having similar views to him. Maybe not like the views of oh, we should go and blow up a federal building, but just yeah. like this, we don't like the government and what they're doing and, and this and that, and kind of more of all, it almost kind of sounds like sort of anarchist, like mm-hmm. they didn't want any government. They just wanted like kind of like this free living or something like that. It's just, yeah, I feel like they really fed off of, you know, this validation from like other people who had similar views. Right, and he was so quick to you know, uh, both of them to, like, wanting to denounce their citizenship and be against the government, but the, did, they, did they ever reflect on, okay, well, what kind of world do we want to live in then if it's not one that has a central, like, government operating? Yeah. Like, I, what do they want, the Wild West? I mean... I mean, I just, I don't think they were... <laughs> I don't think they were men of logic because if that's... If, they're, if the, like, Star Wars quote was actually something one of them said and that was them talking about the horrific murder of like hundreds of people that's just there's nobody it's not so it's no they're yeah. it's just the, the crazy but yeah. yeah so yeah yeah and that's why i wanted to bring up the motives because as you said obviously they bounce each other ideas off each other and what they don't like and and want to absolutely like want to take over one day um but seeing these events happen these sieges i think that's obviously gave them reason to be that's why i when I said that uh, many instances covered by the national media gave a reason to be that obviously the media is going to cover every day because this is like an ongoing thing. And obviously they see this and they're like, hey, see, this is what we were talking about. Like, this is what they're going to do. And then obviously after day 11 and day 51, all of a sudden they're like, wow, look, ended with people dying and using a government overreach and using their power to take over something, you know, just to get it over with. Like, this is obviously probably what they were talking about. And ultimately led them to go through with such a crazy thing yeah it's so crazy the solution to killing people is to kill other people yeah yeah i think especially with the waco siege i 
with the with the Ruby Ridge, I I don't want to say like I understand, but I see a more rational side from him. Whereas the Waco siege, it wasn't just the fact that they had illegal weaponry; they were abusing kids. How do you get behind that? You know, yeah. I don't. I haven't researched much about the Ruby Ridge, but from what I know, I don't know of any child abuse occurring. Um, so I, I'm just saying, especially with the Waco siege, I don't understand why he saw this as like the inst- the last straw, you know, the instigating moment for him to want to commit this crime. Because, I mean, there needed to be government intervention. There was kids being abused. It was a cult. And uh, I, I won't get too much into it. I actually think this would be another good case to cover in the future, another long case again. But yeah, and um, something else that I want to note in this section, uh, rather than wait for next time, is that McVeigh would later say, so after everything was done and committed, um, and he's going to be executed, um, that he said, like in hindsight, that he wished he had committed uh, assassinations rather than um, this domestic terrorism incident, like targeting an entire building. Um, There was specific people he had contemplated, uh, including Attorney General Janet Reno, FBI sniper Lon Horichu. I'm sorry, I can't pronounce that. I'm gonna be honest. We'll have to. Um, we'll do more research on this. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. Like uh, the, you know, the fact that he went from like thinking, oh, you know, maybe I should have just assassinated these specific individuals that uh, had participated in incidents like Ruby Ridge and Waco siege, uh, but then to turn around and just decide to bomb an entire building. Yeah. Yeah. You do see the lack of logic, as Sarah said. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's like it the, it just does not make any sense. But. Yeah. Next time, some of the stuff we're going to cover, uh, we're going to talk about why did uh, the men pick the federal building that they picked, uh, which would be, let me see, uh, oh, Alfred yeah. P. Murray? Murrah? Murrah. Murrah yeah. Federal Building uh, in Oklahoma City. Uh, So we're going to talk a little bit about why he selected that specific building, which some background for that, uh, as Brenton mentioned, that the the uh, what was it, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and also the FBI was involved in the Waco siege. So whenever McVeigh was kind of choosing where he was going to attack, that was something that was in his mind is buildings that house those agencies. Mm. So we're going to talk a bit about that. Uh, We're going to talk about some of the planning that went into the bombing. There's so much more details to go over and then of course, a timeline of the actual incident. But we all, we, we want to focus on, as well, the aftermath, uh, the first responders, those kinds of stories, and maybe try to end uh, talking about, like, what, what do we do when things like this happen? Like, what are, what are we supposed to take away from it? Yeah, that's kind of all we have for today, unless you two have any more comments. No. Yeah, so thank you uh, for listening all the way through, if you're still here. Uh, and... Like I said, we have lots more to cover in part two, and we'll get down to more of the nitty-gritty details of the actual incident. So if that sounds um, interesting to you, then, uh, you know, stay tuned. Uh, But thank you for listening, and we hope you have a better day than how listening to this might have made you feel. So, Yeah. yeah, bye.